We are back in James 3 this morning. We're going to go back over especially verse 1 and 2, but then that will take us back into the center of this chapter. Last week, after I got done, Micah came up and said, you know, you kind of brushed over verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And he said to me, as someone who's doing a bit more teaching now, I'd like to know more about that verse and what it means. And so we're going to talk about it a bit this morning to start out, but we have to get again a bit of the Jamesian context. Because we know for a fact that Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that God gave gifts, doma, gave gifts to the church, and then he delineates what some of those gifts are. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the specific reason of bringing together unity in the church until we all come to a unity of the faith. So God gifted the church with men who could lead the church and teach the church. So we have to assume that it is God's intention within his church that there be teachers. In other words... He's laid out his word, but as the years have gone by, many things, historical things, even doctrinal things, have been forgotten, and so they need to be taught again. Tuesday is Reformation Day. It's not just Halloween, which most of the country will be celebrating, but it is the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And so that began what we call the Protestant or Protestant Reformation of the church. But these days, we who adhere to Protestant theology, to Reformed theology, we who adhere to sovereign grace theology, sound like we're now creating some unique thing. We go out and teach it, and people say, where did that teaching come from? Because so much of the church has moved away from its historic basis. Much of the Baptist church, if you go back and you read the uh, Baptist London Confession, 1689, if you read it, it's exceptionally Calvinistic. And yet most Baptists these days don't know anything about their Calvinistic heritage. They don't understand that they were founded on Calvinistic principles. And so we sound like we're unique. We sound like we're finding things in the Bible that no one's ever seen before or that we're inventing some new theology when in fact we're just advancing the theology that goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul and well before that. I would argue that we're going back to Genesis 1 when God made everything, which means God is sovereign and he's in control of his universe and the whole of the Bible is about men being created for God's glory and God's purposes. God gets the preeminence in all of our theology and that just isn't the case these days in so much of the professing evangelical church. Now, the reason I went through that little exercise was to say any of you who know the theology of the Protestant Reformation, know it because somebody taught you it. 
You didn't just wake up one day and suddenly know it. You were taught it. And that's the reason that God has teachers in his church, because it's necessary that people teach and that God ordained people teach the reality of what the Bible says, the theology and the doctrine of the Bible, what Paul calls the sound doctrine that comes from the teachers within the church. But then James says, but don't be many teachers. So what is he talking about? He's certainly not talking about what Paul was referring to. Paul uses the word didaskalos. It's the same word that James uses. So it would be real easy to kind of conflate James with Paul and say they're both talking about the same thing, the same teachers. But I don't think they are, even though they use the same word. The historic context of the first century church, the first century church being very Jewish and being very influenced by the traditions of what went on in the temple, in the tabernacle, the first century church had just about everybody as a teacher. Anybody could stand up in the congregation and start talking about the scripture. And so there were a great many rabbis. You may know the rabbinical library that's out there. The rabbinical tradition went on and on and on about things that you don't find anywhere in the Bible, things that people would just make up. Well, that was because of the Jewish tradition of allowing pretty much anybody to sort of semi-exposit the scripture. They would just stand up and say what they thought. Paul oftentimes took advantage of that. He would go into the tabernacle, and since anybody could stand up and talk, he would stand up and talk Christ. And then he would get thrown out of that city or get stoned and left for dead or whatever else. But he took advantage of that Jewish custom of just letting anybody speak. And as a consequence, when you got together on the Sabbath, you might hear anybody, quote unquote, teach. And I think this is what James is getting at. Because James is very influenced, again, by the historic traditions of Judaism, and he's very influenced by what's gone on in the temple and by the law and by the wisdom literature and by the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to see again this morning. And so when James warns, don't be many teachers, I think he's talking about that practice of people just standing up and saying things. Why? Because James knows the Old Testament scripture. I know I said we're going to start in James 3, but turn, if you would, to the book of Job, because you do need to see this. I've quoted it a few times, Job 42. You need to see God himself make this proclamation about himself and make this proclamation about people speaking for him. God does not take kindly to the idea that people would speak for him, especially if they're not saying what is correct about him. Now, God has just taken the time through the book of Job, arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament. He's just taken the time to lay out his absolute sovereignty over everything, his ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants, as many times as he wants, whenever, wherever, however he wants. He can do any of that, which includes he can bring Job through the things that Job went through. God can do that. God is not influenced 
God is not driven by, God is not convinced by the activity of human beings. That's what God argues. Now, that's certainly also what Job argues. Job argues that he didn't do anything wrong, and yet all these things happened to him. And so his three friends came to him and said, you must have done something. And they argue theologically that God is a fair God who would only do this to you if you had first done something to bring about God's ire. And so just admit what you've done. And then God can essentially forgive what you've done and we'll all understand it and it'll all make sense. But then God shows up and says that they spoke incorrectly about him. That he being the sovereign, he being the righteous one, can do whatever he wants. And that Job was correct when he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all these things, when Job stood up and tore his mantle, and he never charged God foolishly. And so the book of Job says that he, he did not sin in that he never charged God foolishly. Well, of course, you know that at one point, Job finally says, well, if he were standing here right now, I'd ask him a few questions and he'd answer me. And lo and behold, God shows up and God says, quit you like a man. I'll ask you some questions and you answer me. And then God starts with, where were you when I did everything? So God's argument is, I did everything you did. Let me sum it up. Nothing. And so why should you put me on trial? Why should I have to answer you? And then we have all these chapters of God declaring his sovereignty. At the end of all that, Job 42, starting at verse 7, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite, little short guy, and so far the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The important thing in those several verses right there is that God twice says, you didn't say what was right about me. And as a consequence, God's wrath was kindled against them. He was angry at them for the fact that they would open their mouth and talk about God as if they knew what they were talking about. But they didn't know and they didn't say what was right about God. Therefore, God is angry at them. If it is true that God doesn't change, if it's true God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we have to assume that God in heaven is really angry at a whole lot of people who are talking for God right now. And saying things about him that just aren't true. And you can turn on the radio, the TV, internet, anytime. And you can find people saying things about God that simply are not true. How are you going to say true things about God? By sticking to what the scripture says. So in that way, I think we can apply James 3.1 
to our culture today and make the statement, don't be many teachers, because even all the way back in Job, we're told that God is angry when you don't say what's right about him. And yet there are people claiming to teach about God who are saying all kinds of silliness and all kinds of nonsense. Nevertheless, I do believe that James was specifically talking about the environment that he was living in at that time. He was not responding to Paul, whose letters were just being penned and hadn't circulated yet. I don't think he's arguing with the Pauline concept of teachers in the church. I think he's saying within the the meetings, within the times that you all get together, don't be standing up and spouting off. Don't stand up and pretend you know something. Don't say things about God unless you know these things about God. Stick to the scripture and don't be many didaskalos. Don't stand up and purport to teach people because there's a tremendous responsibility that goes with it. If you would, Tom, look up John 1.38 for me real quick. First chapter of John, verse 38. Everybody else turn to Matthew 23. As we're working our way through these early gospel accounts, you're going to see the word rabbi show up. The word rabbi means what? Means teacher. It's the same word. So now we're going to see what Jesus has to say about teachers because he also put warnings in front of the rabbis, in front of the teachers. And I think James is just echoing what Jesus has already laid out. John 1.38 draws the connection between rabbi and teacher. Read it for us, Tom. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? So John took the time to point out that when they called Jesus rabbi, he says parenthetically in the modern translations, that's translated to mean teacher. So the Bible tells us rabbi means teacher. So we're in Matthew 23 then. Matthew 23, starting right at verse 1, says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. They love being called Rabbi, they love being called teacher by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. 
James is going to pick up that idea in just a few verses. That idea that God gives grace to the humble, but he's going to take down the proud or the arrogant. So here we see Jesus laying out the principle that you should not be proud or happy to be called teacher in the marketplace. I don't understand, me personally, maybe you understand it. Maybe you're better than me, you figured it all out, you got it. I don't understand the concept of celebrity pastor. I don't get that. I don't understand why there are rich, powerful, influential people on the planet who sell themselves as pastors. If you look in the Bible, everywhere that anybody proclaimed Christ, at least proclaiming him correctly, they were persecuted, they were shunned by society, they were stoned, they were constantly, wherever they went, they were constantly persecuted for this preaching of Christianity. And yet now, Christianity has become a platform for celebrityhood. And I don't understand it. Here is Jesus saying, Jesus, the person who these false, I'm going to call them false teachers, false pastors, the person they claim that they're representing, here's Jesus saying, don't love the fact that you're being called out to, oh, hey, teacher, oh, hey, pastor, building people up, putting people on a pedestal. Don't be happy about that. In fact, it's the same Jesus who says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's a clue. If all men speak well of you, you are a man pleaser. You are not trying to please God, and you're probably not saying what is right about God, which makes God angry. And yet there are people who just love being the pastor, the teacher. Now, the word pastor, poimen, it doesn't show up often in the New Testament, but the word means shepherd. Okay, so let's think about David for a moment. Uh, when uh, Samuel came and was told by God that one of the household of Jesse was going to be the next king of Israel, he came and looked at all the sons of Jesse, and they were all tall, good-looking guys, and so he wanted to anoint one of them. He kept arguing with God. It's one of these guys, right? It's one of these guys. Well, it turned out not to be any of those guys. It turned out to be the youngest son, David, who was a shepherd, which was a man of low estate. The guy who kept the sheep was not somebody who was rich or powerful or well-to-do. If you were rich or powerful or well-to-do, you hired somebody to take care of your sheep. Because sheep are smelly. Sheep are out in the field. you got to go out and sleep in the night in the sheep fold with the sheep. Then you become smelly. Sheep are not particularly smart. Sheep don't have any defense mechanisms, so you got to go out and guard the sheep. And sheep have a tendency to wander off. And so most of your job is just recollecting the errant sheep who have wandered away. In other words, shepherd, not a great job. Okay, that's the word translated pastor, shepherd. And most of the job of being the under-shepherd, of being the pastor, the poimen, most of that job is just like being a shepherd of sheep. 
It's staying with the people. It's protecting them, keeping the wall around them and catching them when they wander off and bringing them back in, protecting them from the evil that would try to get them. Much of that is just servile. Much of that, most of that, okay, all of that, is giving yourself away on behalf of other people. In other words, you don't become the rich, powerful one. You don't become the one that everybody lifts up or puts on a pedestal. You're somebody who is servant to the congregation that God has graciously given you to watch over. And that's not a celebrity job. Am I making sense up here? And so I would argue that Jesus has already said, don't be many teachers. Jesus has already said, don't be like the Pharisees. They love the fact that people greet them in the marketplace. Rabbi, rabbi, they like being recognized. When they go and do their alms, they bring people in with trumpets to blow a trumpet before they do their alms so that people will see them do it so that they get more and more recognition for being the high holy people. Jesus denounced all that and called them hypocrites for being like that. And yet I would argue, and I think it's a safe argument, I would argue that way too many of the men who are calling themselves teachers in the church today are acting more like the Pharisees than they are like the shepherds. Is that a safe statement? Yes. Okay. And so I think James is being influenced by Jesus saying that. John 3, you can turn there or not, whatever satisfies you. John 3, starting right at verse 1, is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus says, well, starting at verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In a moment, the fact that he's a Pharisee, Jesus is also going to identify him as a teacher in Israel. So now we know that the Pharisees were also teachers. We know that the lawyers were teachers. These are the ones that were fastidious about the law. And so the Pharisees and the lawyers and the Sadducees would get together and argue about the finer points of the law. And that's where we get so much of the rabbinical tradition historically from. So Jesus was talking to a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, we know that you have come from God As a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. So Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Okay, now Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is self-identified as rabbi, as the teacher. He's the one come from God to teach about God. He's teaching one of the teachers in Israel 
whose response to it is, what? How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe them, which by the way, notice what Jesus did. He made the whole born again thing an earthly thing. He said, this is what has to happen to you while you're on the planet. You have to be born again, not just of water, not just from your mother's womb. You also have to be born anothen from above by the spirit of God. Unless you have both of those births, flesh and spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. He calls that an earthly thing. And yet the teacher of Israel doesn't understand it. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's just Jesus dangling a carrot in front of him. Like, I know stuff you can't begin to understand or know. And how can I tell you all that if you don't even understand the earthly stuff, the meager stuff? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, he's talking about heaven like it's his living room. He knows it like the back of his hand. He knows what heaven is like. He can talk about heaven with intimacy. And yet he's saying, I can't talk to you about heaven. I can't even talk to you about earthly things. No one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, the only reason that I looked at that passage was to say, here is a perfect example of Jesus identifying a teacher. I think this is what James is referring to. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher. The rabbis, they were teachers. The people who just stood up and spouted off in the meetings, in the tabernacle, they were teachers. And so James, seeing all that and knowing that Jesus has said, don't have many teachers, Don't have many masters. You have one master and I'm it. You have a teacher, the Holy Spirit of God. Do not be walking around with that title teacher because, next part, you're going to encounter megas crema. Okay, crema is the word for judgment. And the word that is translated stricter for stricter judgment here in Chapter 3, verse 1, is actually megas. You know megas from Thalipsis megas. It means extreme. The time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again great tribulation. That word great is that word megas. And so James says, don't become many teachers, my brethren, knowing that, and now he includes himself. Now he goes from saying, you brethren, don't be, but now he says, we we shall incur the megas crema. What does that mean? That means if you are bold enough to pick up the word of God and you stand in front of other people or sit down in front of other people, I don't care if you're laying down in front of other people, if you get in front of other people 
and you start talking about the Word of God, you're representing God, you're representing Christ, you're telling people what they ought to think about Jesus, you better be sure you're right because you are facing, by the very fact that you have decided to talk about God, you are facing the reality of Megas Crema, the stricter, greater judgment. So be careful. Take this thing seriously. When I was ordained back in year 2000, and you can see the video on my YouTube channel, time and time again, Elder Ward said to me, and he didn't just say it to me, he pointed at me as he said it, don't take this work lightly. And he said it again and again, don't take this work lightly. As the years have gone by, I've realized my mentor, my friend, the pastor who ordained me along with Elder Morris, he was trying to keep me from the stricter judgment. He was trying to keep me from the anger of God, the wrath of God. He was trying to keep me from saying things that could not be defended biblically. He was trying to keep me from talking about God as if I knew him and then just making things up, which God is very angry about. I say... Take this work seriously because it's serious work. We have had people who walk in here. I just told this story the other day, so I'll, I'll repeat it now. There was a fellow who came here to GCA a few years ago, sat right about where Karen's sitting. And uh, I walked over and introduced myself to him just before the service started. And he said, we're here local now. We've moved here. I'm looking for a church to attend. And... Barely got that out of his mouth before he said, I'm looking for a place where I can teach. I'm looking for a place where my gifts can be utilized and, and I can teach. And I said to him, well, hang around for a while till you find out what we believe. Till you know what it is we are talking about theologically and biblically. Stick around a while until the people get to know you and get to trust you because you know the old phrase, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Mm. Stick around for a while until they get to know you a bit. And then if God has truly gifted you, he will make room for your gift. But I can't imagine somebody walking in as a stranger into a church and just announcing immediately, I'm looking for a place where I can get up and talk about the stuff I know without even knowing what that church is about. Okay, that would be a good example of take this thing seriously. Don't be many teachers. Be careful because there is a stricter judgment coming for those people who stand up and talk about the things of God. I've said it time and time again, and I mean it. I don't know if people know that I mean it. I'd much rather be sitting where you are, any of you. I would much rather be sitting out there and letting somebody else take the job, take the responsibility. I would much rather somebody else deal with the stricter judgment. I don't want to worry about stricter judgment. Wait, it, it gets worse. Hebrews 13, 17 says, speaking to the congregation, obey your leaders and defer to them, for they keep watch over you and will have to give an account that they may fulfill their task with joy 
and not with sorrow, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, i got to give an account. God at some point is going to hold me responsible for what I did, what I said, and the people that he gave me to be the under-shepherd too. I don't want that job. I don't want that responsibility. I have enough to do dealing with my problems. Any less dealing with your peccadilloes? I know most of you, and you're a mess. And I don't, I don't want to give it. So what's the safest thing to do? Just make sure that everything I'm teaching comes right from the word of God. Just keep presenting the word of God and driving people, not to me. I'm not your solution. I'm not the answer. I don't have all the answers. I can't die for you. I can't redeem you. I can't wash away your sin. I can't do you any real good. The only thing I can do is like a traffic cop, point you to the one who can actually help you. That's all I can do. And that's all a good Bible teacher should do. Any Bible teacher who is drawing people to himself, who's building his bigger ministry and getting a greater name and selling more books and putting more stuff out. And anybody who's doing that for the sake of fame is assuming, essentially, that Jesus suffered everything he suffered. The ignominious death of Christ happened. He suffered the way criminals suffer after being beaten and lashed and the crown of thorns and being nailed to a chunk of wood and crying out in pain. He did all that so that you could be a celebrity. How? How? There's only one celebrity in the Christian church. Amen. That's Jesus. He's the only one who matters. Look, I'm going to die and be forgotten. That's the plan. But he's going to go on. I'm going to be in heaven worshiping him. I'll be praising him. I'll be singing the glories of him. But every preacher on the planet, every human being on the planet has their time and their space, and then they're gone. But the church survives because Christ ever lives and is ever making intercession for his people because his people always need intercession. He's doing that, not me, and not Micah, and not Tom, and not Alex, and not Steve, and not anybody else who stands right here behind this pulpit. Not Barney. Not anybody who stands here. They can't do you any good except to point you to Christ. And if they're not pointing you to Christ, I'm taking them out of the pulpit. Because they got no business standing in front of you drawing people to themselves. So I think I can agree with James saying, don't be many teachers, my brethren. Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter Judgment. I'm not done talking about stricter judgment, but I see a hand. Yes? Uh, it, it's okay. I know you, you want to finish your thought. Um, in the same sense that a person can be called to preach, is there such a thing as a situation where someone wants to preach, but they don't have the gift for it, it's not meant for them to do, and doing so, you know, they'll say the wrong thing, or they'll have the wrong motive? Or that yes. Happen? Yeah. Yeah. Because you walk into a church, let's say it's a big church, let's say it's a, a showbiz church in Nashville. Let's say it's crystal. Let's say it's made of crystal. Okay, fair enough. That one's in California, but okay. But let's say there's a big church. The guy in the front, if he's well-dressed, well-paid, 
well-lit, he's wearing a microphone, he's the loudest, most obvious guy in the room. He's got a lot of political influence, he's got a lot of social influence, he can rally great numbers of votes, so that gives him a lot of social and political influence and stuff. Okay, so you're in that church and you're seeing that guy. If you're thinking about what do I want to do for a living, it's easy to start thinking I want to be that guy. I want to have what he has. Because in a little while, James is going to talk about the fact that wars break out because people want what they don't have. And so it's going to come up in a week or two here in the book of James. So yes, that's human beings. They want what they don't have. They go into a church. They see the influential, well-dressed, well-lit, loud pastor. They think, I want that. If the job is being done well, if the job is being done right, then that pastor should really be telling people, you don't want this job. I tell people all the time, I've said it on video, it's on YouTube, and I don't think folks believe me, but I keep saying, the only reason you should ever be a teacher of the Bible, the only reason I can come up with, is that you can't help yourself. If you can do anything else, if you can do anything else, do it. Because if you can, then you should. But if you can't help yourself, if that fire is in your belly, if you just got to proclaim the word of God, then that's a good indication that the spirit of God is working through you and that you are called to be a preacher. But if you're called to be a teacher or a preacher or stand up in front of a church because you like the way it looks, well, then you're the Pharisee in the marketplace who loves being recognized and people shouting out to, hey, rabbi, rabbi. You're the very one that Jesus called hypocrite. You want to get up and look good. So this idea of greater judgment also comes up in Matthew 23, 14. It's one of the few other places that you find that concept. Listen to Jesus talk. He's talking, oddly enough, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Starting in Matthew 23, right at verse, I'll start at 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he gives them the very kind name, hypocrites. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, but you do not enter in yourself. Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, wherefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Now, the word greater there isn't megas. He changes it for P-E-R-I-S-S-O-S, parasos, if that's the proper pronunciation of it. But it means greater. It means more abundant. When Jesus is talking about you're going to receive more abundant damnation, he knows what he's talking about. And who does he say that to? To the Pharisees who are hypocrites, who make a pretense of their long prayers while they're devouring widows' houses, and yet these are the supposed leaders in Jerusalem 
in Israel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. You know the word proselyte? It means to convert one person to your way of thinking. You will go anywhere. You will compass land and sea to go make even one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the child of hell that you are. That's Jesus talking to teachers and he's saying you're setting yourself up for greater condemnation okay so I think that's where James gets it do you hear the similarity now James who's familiar with that talk is now saying don't be many teachers because if you do you're going to incur a stricter judgment that's what Jesus said so I think within that first century environment within the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers and the ability of everybody to get up whenever they wanted and start to expound on God, you can see now why James is returning to, don't you remember what Jesus first said? Jesus said, don't be many teachers, don't be many Pharisees, don't be many lawyers, don't be many folks who are trying to tell other people how to keep the law. That's how come the law eventually got so corrupted because people would stand up and try to make some additional idea of the law. I think I've told you many times before that there was actually a rabbinical argument about whether you could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. And the way they settled the argument was you could eat the egg as long as you could prove the chicken didn't work. Now that sounds silly, but that's part of the rabbinical tradition because that's how far they stretched it in trying to impose their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own philosophies onto the word of God. And I argue that there are people doing the same thing today. I've been in plenty of holiness circles and talked to a couple of holiness preachers in my life who actually believe that it matters that a pastor, when he preaches, wear a white shirt and a simple, preferably black tie, and a coat. That is it. That's the dress for preacher. That's it. That's all you can wear. But I know other preachers who say, if you're going to be the pastor, preacher, minister in a church, you have to wear the clerical collar. And then I know other people who threw all that off and say, no, I'm going to preach in a Mickey Mouse t-shirt and have a long chain by my side and have a... So there's arguments within the church about what somebody wears when they speak the word of God in front of the church. There's nothing in the Bible about that. But these are the kind of arguments and silliness that go on inside the church. I've seen churches that actually insisted that women wear skirts, no pants, and that the skirts are always at least two inches below your knee. And they would stand at the door with a ruler to make sure that was true. And then, if you wore something a little more than two inches above the knee, they said that you were going to tempt the men. So apparently the problem in those churches was the men who just couldn't stop thinking about women's shins. <laughs> and you, you couldn't show off your shin. It's just silliness. It's just debris that is being substituted for the word of God. The word of God has Plenty of 
knowledge, has plenty of information. It's enough to keep the smartest man in the world entertained for the whole rest of his life and off into eternity. And yet there are people substituting debris for the word of God or adding to it or expanding on it. Why? Because they themselves thought they were teachers. And so they start making stuff up and teaching things. So I say for all the future teachers out there, Take this work seriously. Recognize who it is you serve. Here's another phrase I've used often, but I'll say it again. I know I'm preaching to all of you, but I play to an audience of one. Because when this is over, I got to answer to him, not to you. I have to answer to him about what I did with his word and his people. You don't belong to me. You belong to him. And he gave you the gift ministries of the church for the purpose of bringing you to the unity of the faith. But he did not say, here, Jim, these people now belong to you. Do what you want with them. Here's my sheep. Fleece them. That that never happened. No, they're Christ's sheep. All I'm trying to do is teach and be serious about the teaching And be careful about the teaching because God is real serious that you say things that are right about him. And he will make sure that false teachers incur very strict judgment. That's verse 1. We can now move on. Because he hasn't finished the thought because verse 2 says, for. So he's continuing the thought. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. This is why he's saying, be careful. Don't all be teachers because we're all prone to making mistakes. We're all prone to stumbling. We're all faulty. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, then he's, the word perfect is is an odd translation. It's a complete or a whole or a grown-up man because he's able to bridle the whole body as well. And that introduces the concept of watching your tongue, which we've talked about twice so far in the book of James. So I'm just going to read the next few verses so that we see the context And then we're going to talk about James's return to the concept of wisdom and his influence, which is from the wisdom literature. Now, if we put bits into horses' mouths so that they may obey us, then we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. 
For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Well, then neither can salt water produce fresh water. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, so let's go back and start piecing together verses 13 to verse 18. Let's parse away at it just a little bit to really understand what James is getting at. Wisdom, first off, he's returning to this concept of wisdom, this idea of Sophia, what it is to be a grown-up and complete person. I still think, by the way, this is kind of under the heading of don't be many teachers because he's also going to talk about selfish ambition. And he says that selfish ambition that we see so frequently in people who want to be teachers in the church, that selfish ambition, he says, comes from the devil. It's demonic. So I think he's still explaining that good speech leads to good behavior. Or let me put it a, a better way. You can't really control your body and control your behavior until you've controlled your speech, until you've controlled your tongue. The key to right talk, here I'll put it this way, the key to right talk is right thought. You have to start by having your mind purified. You have to start by having the spirit of God acting as a governor on your thoughts, and then you're going to be able to speak the things of God correctly. Last week, Leon pointed out that the tongue is in a cage behind the teeth and the lips, and yet mine, despite that, despite my lips and my teeth trying to keep in, mine escapes regularly, gets away, and gets away from me. And that's what he's been talking about, the damage that we can do with our tongue. So it's not intelligence that keeps the lock on the cage of our mouth and our teeth. James argues that it's wisdom, a wisdom that is characterized by humility and grace and peace. Wisdom is humble 
he says in verse 13 here. James asked the rhetorical question, who is wise and understanding among you? The word wise describes one who has moral insight and skill in living through the practical issues of life. Do you understand that definition? Understanding, though, refers to intellectual perception, scientific acumen, the ability to understand the things that are coming at you, especially theology, doctrine, the things of God coming toward you. So he talks about wise and understanding men, wise and understanding men, people who understand their place in this life, who understand their sinfulness, who understand their own depravity and the high holiness of God, people who have that kind of comprehension watch their tongue because they realize that the tongue is corrupting the whole rest of the body. In verses 14 to 16, he argues that wisdom is gracious. True wisdom makes no room for what he calls bitter envy or Some of your translations will say zealous jealousy. It doesn't have any room for selfish ambition. In fact, as you read through it, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That's the same word that is sometimes translated as boastful. Don't become boastful in your selfish ambition and in your jealousy because he says the end of that is you end up boasting against the truth. The truth is you should not be arrogant. The truth is you should not be so boastful. The truth is you should not have selfish ambition, especially within the church. You should not build yourself up like you're the the great one or the important one or the Because that, by the way, is exactly how cults begin. Wisdom is gracious. Envy and strife are clear indicators that one's so-called wisdom isn't from above. Because look, he says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. So where does that supposed wisdom come from? That selfish ambition and jealousy and arrogancy and boastfulness, that kind of wisdom, where does that come from? It's earthly, it's natural, it's fleshly. And he adds, it's demonic. If you're full of me first, instead of taking care of others, esteeming others as better than yourself, look on the things of others, Treat others as better than yourself. If you're all about that jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, he says that comes straight from Satan himself. Envy and strife are clear indicators that one's so-called wisdom is not from above. But it's earthly, it's unspiritual, natural, sensual, and it's of the devil. Envy and selfishness, ambition, rivalry, they can only produce disorder and confusion. That's not going to produce what the gift ministries are there for. The gift ministries, God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the perfecting of the saints until we all come into the unity of the faith. But selfish ambition causes confusion and disruption. Disruption. Okay, money, penny. 
Um, that was my Sean Connery. <laughs> That's what that was. That was my Sean Connery moment. It causes confusion and disruption. Look, how many folks here, I know I have, but how many of you have been in churches where because of some exercise of ego on behalf of somebody in the leadership, the church splintered, the church fell apart, the church, came, the church that Tom and I were a part of out in Los Angeles, when the leader died, I mean, it was like, what do we do now? Because it was all about him. It was all attracted to him. In fact, I reached the point where I wanted his approval more than I wanted God's approval because it was all about him. And then he got old and got sick and got cancer and he died. And there was just general disarray after that because it causes confusion is my point. And that is the opposite of what the gift ministries are supposed to do for the church. They're supposed to create unity. They're supposed to create oneness of the faith, oneness within the church, one spirit, one baptism, one faith. That all comes through the proper teaching that is given by the gift ministries to the church. But whenever anybody uses the church as a way to show off their own egocentricities, or they get on stage, get on a platform, get up in front of some pulpit to show off their quote-unquote gifts, it's just another way of saying, look at me go, watch me, aren't I great? And that causes confusion. Number three, wisdom is peaceable. That's verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Wisdom like that comes down from heaven. That's the wisdom that is from above. It's first pure and it's holy. It's peace-loving. It's considerate. It's forbearing. It's submissive. It's easy to be entreated. That's one of the words that he's going to use here. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial. And it's sincere. It's without hypocrisy. The word pure that he uses here is hognos. It's the same root as hagios. Holy. That the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first clean, it's innocent, it's modest, and it's peaceable. Irenikos, for those of you who are looking at your Greek dictionary, let me know if I say any of these words incorrectly. It's the word irene, it's the word that means peace all the way through. This is just the adjective form of it. It's irenikos, which means it's pacific. It's mild, it's gentle, it's patient. And reasonable, I like this word. I, I once upon a time, way back when, when I would meet folks and they would say, how are you? My standard answer was, I'm reasonable. And then one day I said that to a fellow, met a stranger, and I said, I'm reasonable. And he said to me, I am so glad to meet a reasonable man. I'm the one. <laughs> I'm the one. I'm, then you're happy you met me. It's the word eupathes. It's good for persuasion. In, in other words, it means that you're easily entreated, that you understand, that you listen, that you consider things, that you don't just automatically start with, I know better than you, which far too many teachers do. Far too many Teachers within the church separate themselves from the congregation, make it difficult for the congregation to even get to them, don't like the mess and the muck and the mire of church life day to day. And so they just separate themselves from all that, and they can't be 
entreated. Have you ever known a pastor, preacher, teacher who you had to say about them? They're unteachable. I can't teach them anything. They won't hear it. They don't listen. Okay, well, he's saying that the, the wisdom that comes down from above is actually reasonable, will actually consider, will actually listen, and is easily entreated. And is merciful, elios, you know that word. It means compassion. It sometimes is put together with the word tender. It's the mercy, the kind of mercy that God had on you. That's the kind of wisdom that comes down from heaven. It's unwavering, the actual Greek word, adiakritos. That's the, the combination of the alpha negative, the ah in the front of it, so you know it's going 180 degrees the opposite direction. That's stuck on the front of the word, and then it's from a derivative of the word diacrino. Now, the only reason I point all that out is we've talked about diacrino before. It means to separate or to withdraw from. It's a word that Paul uses for judgment when he's talking about the people who are taking communion the wrong way. So it's a word that means to separate out. And he says that the wisdom that comes down from above isn't like that. It doesn't separate people. It doesn't push people apart. It's the opposite of that. It pulls people together. And so it's impartial. It has no partiality. It doesn't draw distinctions between people. It's only looking for the Spirit of God and the community of the Spirit of God. And then without hypocrisy, the same thing. James does the same thing. He uses the alpha negative, and then he uses the standard word, hypocrinomai, if I'm saying that right. And so basically it means not being a hypocrite, not being a dissembler. It means to be sincere, without dissimulation, without hypocrisy, unfeigned. So these are the things that James says are the wisdom that come down from above. The wisdom of the earth is obvious. You can see it, and far too often you can see it in pulpits. Far too often you can see it in people who are pretending to be or purported to be leaders or teachers within the church. If you see arrogance, if you see boastfulness, if you see selfish ambition, if you see jealousy within the church, then you know that that's not coming from God. That's not coming from the spirit from above. It's coming from the earth. It's coming from fleshliness. It's coming from Satan. Because the real wisdom that comes down from above doesn't have that selfish ambition, doesn't create disorder, and is pure is holy, and then creates peace. It's peaceable. Which, by the way, I believe James gets directly from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So that kind of wisdom is peaceable, and it's gentle, and it's reasonable, and it's merciful, and it's full of good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Hebrews 12.10, the only reason I'm bringing this up is to combine it with verse 18. James says that the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, blessed are the, the peacemakers. But also the writer of Hebrews says the same thing, that when we've been disciplined, 
that discipline for the moment doesn't seem joyful, it seems sorrowful, and yet to those who have been trained by the discipline of God, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So James and the writer of Hebrews have just combined the concept of holiness and the concept of righteousness, the concept of justification with the reality of peace and making peace and bringing peace. Because genuine righteousness, genuine heavenly holy righteousness brings peace. No more againstness with each other or with God. I know when I came to the reality that God wasn't against me, because I spent so much of my life being told what I had to do, do more, do better. When I realized that it was done, peace broke out. For the first time, I wasn't angry at God. I thought God was out to get me. I thought God was up there keeping score. And the minute I did something wrong, he was just waiting to throw me into hell. He couldn't wait to put me in the flames of fire. He was just gunning for me. And as soon as I would stumble, I thought, that's it, I'm I'm done. It's one of the reasons I just left the church. I got tired of being told how bad I was without the good news of, and there's a perfect Savior. When I heard about the perfect Savior, peace broke out. I had peace with God. I felt the love and the mercy of God. I felt the redemption, the salvation of God. And as a consequence, I found it much easier to be nice with Jeff. Not just Jeff, but you know what I mean. I found it much easier to put other people ahead of myself because I understood what mercy was. Because I understood how bad I was and how God was not going to dole out his punishment on me. So who am I to dole out my punishment on other people? Who am I to maintain my selfish ambition? Who am I to boast in me? Watch me. More me. And then be merciless to other people because they didn't live up to what I expected of them. But that's the religion I was taught. I was taught the religion of the guy at the front of the room with the clerical collar in the white robe. He's the good one. And every Sunday, for some inexplicable reason, we would go allow ourselves to be yelled at by that guy. (laughs) And he would tell us how bad we were and how wrong we were. And every message seemed to be (sighs) hell and damnation until I just couldn't take it anymore and left. But Jesus is altogether lovely. The common people heard Jesus gladly. The message of salvation and redemption, the gospel rightly, purely taught, is the best news anybody's heard. And people ought to flock to hear that time and time again. We meet here once a week. We meet here twice a week. For most of you, it's once a week. (laughs) We, We meet here to talk about the grace and the glory of God. If it were up to me, we'd meet here every day because we need to hear it every day because we're so full of arrogance and selfish ambition every day. So be careful. Take this thing seriously. Don't be many teachers. Only be a teacher if you can't help yourself because God is going to put a lot of responsibility on you and it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be fun and that's just the gig. 
But then recognize that if you're being full of selfish ambition or ego or boastfulness, that that didn't come from God. That didn't come from heaven. Worst case scenario, it came straight from Satan and is now acting right through you while you stand up in front of other people, acting like the hypocrite while you're full of unholiness and uncleanness. Recognize that the only safe way is to teach the word. Teach the word. Teach the word. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Teach the word. Don't teach your own made-up concepts and theories and philosophies. And Who cares if it sells a lot of books? God's angry about it. Teach the word. And then bring the people of God to the only Savior, the only person who can save their souls. Make sure that you guide people back to Christ, and that's the only way you're going to be safe when it's time for you to give an account. So be peaceful, be wise, be gentle, and in that way, you represent Christ correctly, I think. Does that make sense? Makes sense. Now am I alone up here? No. No? No? Okay. Any questions? Are you glad now that you asked that we go back over that verse? I appreciate you doing so. Okay. I appreciate it, too. Well, thanks. The rest of you, I'm going to assume, don't appreciate it. But <laughs> All right, then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.